that um, video is that we just watched is the first song on Gord Downey's album that he released in October of last year called The Secret Path, in which uh, Gord Downey musically, he was a Canadian musician, he, he musically tells the story of Chani Winjack, who, as you saw in the video, um, in October, on October uh, 16th, 1966, escaped from the residential school in which he was being housed in Kenora, Ontario, and tried to make it the 600 kilometers on foot that it would take for him to be reunited with his family. Uh, over the next seven days, when Jack walked for probably a total of 36 hours, he covered more than 50 kilometers, most of it on a CN railway a CN rail line. And he died on October 22nd, 1966, from hunger and exposure to the cold. His story was told in McLean's magazine a year later in an article entitled The Lonely Death of Chani Wenjack. And it brought to national attention in Canada for the first time the abysmal treatment of, of indigenous children in the residential school system. And it launched an inquiry and actually initiated a process of legislative reform in Canada concerning Canada's relationship with the indigenous community, a process that continued for 50 years, all the way up until this past week. Uh, this past week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that he was committed to conforming all Canadian legislation to meet the standards of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, a process that will take years, if not decades, to implement. We have a long way to go. The fact that Gordon Downey had to release an album about this issue on the 50th anniversary of the death of Chani Winjack just tells you how slow the conversation goes and how far we have left to accomplish. Often because it's a conversation we don't have. And this morning, we want to have a conversation about race relations in Canada precisely because this is a conversation that we don't have. And I need to say on the front end, I am the absolutely worst person to be leading us through a conversation like this because uh, I am a white person. In fact, whiter than most. I was raised as a white male in an affluent middle-class family. The systems that surrounded me, my neighborhoods, my schools, my churches, were all systems that were designed by white people for white people in order to advantage white people. I don't know what discrimination feels like. I don't know what social obstacles feel like. As a white male, I can pretty much go wherever I want and do whatever I want in our culture. I don't know how my whiteness oppresses and hurts people of color in our community. And so what I've done to prepare for this conversation, I'm not gonna preach anything to anybody this morning. What I've done is I've tried to listen to as many voices from people of color as I can over the last couple of weeks in order to prepare to amplify their perspectives for us this morning. I want 
I mean, ideally a person of color would be delivering this talk, but I want to amplify those voices for us this morning. I've read black theologians, talked to uh, Asian friends, indigenous friends, tapped into the migrant worker experience to try and understand a different perspective. So that we can have a conversation about the fundamentals, the basics about race and racism in our culture. And what I've learned over the last little while is that the most basic thing that we need to understand is that race uh, doesn't exist. Race is, there is no biological component to what we call race. Race is entirely a social construct. In fact, uh, they have said that the human genome, uh, 85% of the human genome, uh, we share across the entire human race. We have in common people from all over the planet. It's the 85% of the genome that makes us human beings instead of palm trees. We share all of that in common. By far, the vast majority of our humanity is something we hold in common. 15% of our humanity is our places where we differ. And the ways that we've chosen to define race in the modern world actually tap into a tiny fraction of those, that 15% of the human genome. Just a few genes that have to do with skin pigmentation and the shape of people's eyes. Truth be told, genetically speaking, the odds are that I have much more in common genetically with someone living in South Saharan Africa or in South Sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia than I do with other Germanic whites who are sitting in the room with me right now. If you want... <laughs> validation or evidence that whiteness, that race is a social construct. In the early 20th century, Irish and Italian immigrants were not considered white until they sued for that status in the, United, in the courts of the United States of America. There were times in the early 20th century when Japanese, the Japanese community sued to be classified as whites and were and then lost it lost the designation. It is a completely, race is a completely arbitrary designation based on uh, highly visible traits that are literally skin deep. Race isn't real. But racism is. Racism is the systemic and structural oppression of non-dominant cultural groups. That's racism. It's the ways in which societies are constructed to privilege, to overprivilege and overadvantage some groups and to underadvantage others. Racism is the tool that empire uses to establish and maintain power at the expense of people who are different. And it has always existed, except it hasn't always been based on race. So go back 2,000 or 2,500 years, the Greek empire, the Roman empire. In those empires, the Greeks and the Romans had ways of classifying human beings as either Greek or Roman or everybody else, 
right? And what made the distinction between a Greek person and a non-Greek person was not speaking the Greek language. That's what made you a non-Greek. But the Greeks and the Romans shared a label for everyone who is not a Greek or a Roman. The label was barbarian. If you, were, if you didn't speak Greek or Latin, you were a barbarian. And it's, it was intended to be a denigrating term, a put down. Right? How do we think about a barbarian? It's someone who is violently savage, who's primitive and superstitious, uncultured, uncivilized, and backwards. And that was exactly the implication they wanted. Because the label itself establishes that we are superior and they, the barbarians, are inferior. It's a way of justifying the ways in which we're going to treat them in order to establish and maintain our power. Because they're inferior. They're getting what they deserve. In, in biblical times, the same dynamic existed between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Jews never had a lot of political power except for very brief instances in their history. But Jews thought in this term where there were Jews, those who worship Yahweh and are committed morally to living according to his covenant. And there's everybody else called Gentiles. And some rabbis taught that Jews had no obligation to behave morally towards Gentiles because Gentiles are worse than Jews. So you could kill a Gentile, you could take their land if it personally benefited you as a Jew or it benefited the Jewish race. This is how racism works. It sets up structures of oppression that label and um, oppress groups that are called inferior in order to justify the behavior of the dominant group and to consolidate power. 500 years ago, it was the empires of Northern and Western Europe who were rising in dominance. People who had pale skin, just like me. And they began to send ships out all over the world in order to spread their dominance globally. And in the interest of consolidating global power for pale-skinned people, for Anglo-Saxon Protestants, really, but later on it became for white people in general, they began to refer to non-white people as inferior, as savages, as a way of denigrating everyone who wasn't white in order to consolidate white power, establish white supremacy, you know, technologically, economically, civilly, uh, spiritually, morally in their minds, to establish white supremacy over all the other races in order to grab and consolidate power for ourselves. Which means this. For those of us in the room this morning who are white, we live in a culture that was built by whites and for whites to advantage whites and to disadvantage everybody who's not like us. The statistics are clear. Incarceration rates, an indigenous person, though they make up 3% of the national population, they make up 25% of corrections admissions in our correctional system. You are 10 times more likely to be incarcerated as an indigenous person than you are as a non-indigenous person. Look at the poverty rates. Based on the 2016 census in Toronto, um, non-white children are twice as likely to live in poverty as white children. 84% of indigenous families with children live below the poverty line. 
And it doesn't matter what your education is. A white person with a university degree has about a 10% chance of living in poverty. A non-white person with a university degree has a 25% chance of living in poverty. We've built a society by whites for whites to advantage whites. We don't talk about that a lot in Canada. We we have a, an official government policy of multiculturalism which allows us to feel like we're post-racial as a society. It's the Americans in the South who you know, owned slaves and had to go through the civil rights movements and Jim Crow laws and lynching and um, who, you know, Black Lives Matter and police violence against people of color. They're the ones with the race problem. But we can't really have a conversation about race in Canada without acknowledging that we're sitting, as we have this conversation, on stolen land. Land that our ancestors took from the Anishinaabe tribe, um, who our founders tried to eliminate. That's what the residential school system was actually all about. It was about removing indigenous children from their family, their culture, and their language to surround them by white people, white culture, and white language. To assimilate them into white culture in order to eliminate the indigenous race in Canada. The recently published Truth and Re report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls it cultural genocide. It's genocide not by the slaughter of bodies, though that has happened in spades. You know, most recently murdered and missing indigenous women reports and so on. But a genocide perpetrated by destroying a culture and trying to forcibly assimilate indigenous people into white culture. That's what the reserve system is all about. It's about removing indigenous people from the land that we want so that we can build a culture by whites, for whites, to advantage whites, to put them somewhere else, out of sight, out of mind, to remove them from the centers of power. All the reserves are out in the country. They indigenous people aren't urban people. And to separate from them from each other as far as possible so they can't consolidate power with each other. We've done it through stereotypes. The lazy Indian, a freeloading, lazy Indian who's gaming the system because they don't pay taxes. Have you ever heard someone say, geez, I wish I didn't have to pay taxes? Yeah? Go to Attawapiskat and ask how lucky they are. See, this is the reality that we don't really acknowledge, is that we have benefited Materially, financially, we benefited in every way by taking land from other people and building a culture by whites for whites to advantage whites. And that is hard to hear. I get it. It's hard to hear because it sounds like somebody is calling you a racist. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you walk around using the N-word or are openly hateful of other you know, people of color and so on. Um, but it can feel like that. It's hard because even if it doesn't feel like that, all of a sudden you become aware that you've become complicit in a system that is built on the systemic oppression of people who aren't like you and you've benefited from it. You feel like a puppet in an evil empire and we have been. It's hard to hear because 
Your identity's at stake. All of a sudden, maybe the things that you thought you had accomplished on your own, you had earned by your own hard work and determination, you realize actually our culture has advantaged you into those opportunities. Interesting study done in the United States where researchers sent four, you know, one of four identical resumes to employers who were advertising jobs in the newspaper. They would read the ads and they would send one of the four identical resumes to each of these employers. The resumes were identical in every single way, experience, you know, education, and so on, except for one thing, the name at the top was changed. Two of the resumes, uh, the name that appeared was a typically white name, Emily or Greg. On two of the resumes, there was a typically black name, Jamal or Lakeisha. You want to guess what happened? Jamal and Lakeisha, or to say it this way, Emily and Greg were 50% more likely to get a call for an interview than Jamal and Lakeisha. Identical resumes from people who had never met the applicant making decisions based on a name alone. A temptation when you realize that the culture is built by whites for whites to advantage whites is to maybe go into denial, maybe be angry that someone's calling you a racist or to have your heart broken. But it's true of the culture in which we live. And here's the more tragic thing. It's true of the church. This conversation is all about what Jesus would say about race relations. So let's start here. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine, fix in your imagination a picture of Jesus. Right? None of us have ever met Jesus. But, you know, picture in your mind, uh, uh, get an image of Jesus in your mind. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you are picturing a long-haired, bearded, blue-eyed white man? That's the Jesus of the church that has participated in white supremacy. Jesus was a Jew. He was short and dark skinned, had black hair. But that's not the Jesus that the world knows. That white Jesus that you pictured is the Jesus who's responsible for the residential schools that the churches ran, the traumatized generations of indigenous people. That white Jesus is responsible for theologically justifying chattel slavery in the United States, saying it was God's will. That white Jesus was responsible for the moral majority movement, which was a political movement in the evangelical church that started in the 60s and rose to prominence in the 80s, whose founding issue was the right to segregate white Christian schools. They were fighting racial integration. They weren't founded on anti-abortion policy. That came later. They were founded as a group fighting, fighting for the right to segregate their white Christian schools. That's the Jesus that people assume is worshipped by the 81% of evangelicals in the states who support the racialized policies of the current administration. The church has been complicit in setting up structures of systemic oppression. And not just systemically, but communally. Martin Luther King Jr. said that, the, that it is appalling that the most segregated hour in the American week is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And just take a look around the room you're sitting in right now. Um, 
We have self-segregated. And if we look at our friendship circle, our dinner table, our phone contacts, our social media contacts, the authors we read, the podcasts we listen to, the the social media figures we follow, the music that we uh, relate to, we have self-segregated. We've excluded the voices of people of color. We have diminished the experiences of people of color. A friend of mine who's indigenous said he, he asked his life group to watch a documentary about the residential school system. And as soon as the documentary is over, he said a white male in his group said, well, I don't know about that. All I know is that if indigenous people accepted Jesus, their lives would be better. He erased their experience. My indigenous friend, he said he never went back. Um, we have stereotyped people of color. One of the black theologians that I read in preparation for this morning said the most hostile racial environment that he was in was in the white Christian college in which he was educated. The church has participated in systems of oppression. But here's the thing. That is not what Jesus is about. That's not what the kingdom of God is like. In Romans chapter 12 or 2, this is what the Bible says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't just slide into the rest of the way that culture operates. The church is to be distinct from the rest of society. One of the ways that the church is to be distinct is that the church is intended to be a community of racial diversity. At one point, Uh, One biblical writer had a vision of the church worshiping God in heaven. This is what he wrote in Revelation chapter 7. So after this I looked and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne of God. Listen to those words. Nation, tribe, people, language. Nation is a sociopolitical grouping under a single government. Tribe is a subculture. People is like any people group and language is any cultural group. He said, I saw people from every nation, tribe, people and language, same for the throne of God. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to Jesus. In one single unified loud voice, they sang, praise God for what Jesus has done. The church will one day be and is supposed to be today the unified community of people who are bonded together by our shared humanity and our shared faith in Jesus, regardless of the factors that diversify us, the racial factors that make us different than each other. Now that doesn't mean, and I want to be clear about this, that doesn't mean that the church is to be colorblind. White people say this a lot. I don't see color. I just treat everybody the same. And that is not the goal. In fact, that's the opposite of the goal. When you say I'm colorblind, number one, that's not true. We all see race and we all respond to races differently. Um, I learned this the hard way when Krista and I found ourselves for the first time traveling outside a predominantly white Christian society the first day we were in Istanbul. We realized how much we perceive people of color through lenses that have been conditioned by our culture. But secondly, um, 
Only white people can say that because only white people can afford to ignore the impact of race. People of color have to be aware of their racial limitations and, and the culture of whiteness in order to survive in our culture. And thirdly, it's admittedly blind. You're ignoring the gift that the diversity is of somebody else's life experience, somebody else's cultural background, somebody else's perspective, somebody else's gifts, somebody else's, the differences that we bring to each other are precisely the things that help us to see God in the image of God in a broader way. The goal is not to be colorblind. The goal is to be confronted by the ways in which we're different in order to be trained and educated and grown by them. That's what the church is supposed to be this, this unified community of racial diversity. And what is not permitted within the church, according to the New Testament, is any form of hierarchy or hostility. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul says, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Every one of those examples divides all of humanity into two groups and says some are this and some are that. And one is always better than the other. Jew better than Gentile, male better than female, free better than slave. We live in a culture where white is better than everything. There's a, an experiment done called the Clark Doll Experiment in the middle 20th century. White children and black children were interviewed individually and on the table in front of them was a white doll and a black doll and they were asked, which doll is prettier and which doll is uglier? Which doll is good and which doll is bad? And a series of other questions. The last one was, which doll looks the most like you? And all children Black and white identified the white doll as prettier and good and the black doll as uglier and bad, even the black children. Whiteness is overvalued in our culture. Which is why an Asian friend of mine says the hardest thing about being Asian in Canada is just being herself. Because the pressures to conform to white culture, to, to the realization that success in our culture depends on her conformity to white culture, draws her into participating in white culture. If you're white, you probably don't even know what white culture is. I heard a black artist say he had to watch all the seasons of Friends just to understand how his white friends think. White culture is a thing. And the pressure to conform to it is huge, so much so that my Asian friend says that her Asian community now has kind of dissociated themselves. You're not a part of us anymore. They call her a banana. You may be yellow on the outside, but you're really white on the inside. You're not a part of us. And of course, the white community only looks at the color of skin and the shape of the eyes and says, you're not part of us. She's been excluded by everywhere because white, white is valued the most. Ever wonder why we only use the word ethnic to mean non-white things? You can either eat food or ethnic food, but a hamburger is never called ethnic food. Only Mexican, ethnic dress, ethnic culture, never white called ethnic because white is held up as the ideal. That sort of hierarchy is not permitted. Hostility is not permitted. In Ephesians 2, it says, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus broke down the barrier, tore down the wall, diffused the hostility between the racial groups and joined us together as one, as parts of his family. Now, by hostility, I don't mean that you're walking around using the N-word. 
or using the word Jew as a verb. We manifest hostility in subtle ways, like stereotypes. That black youth are assumed to be thugs or welfare queens. That Asians are assumed to be hardworking and polite. It's actually a form of racial violence that says, I know who you are and I don't even have to get to know you. Condescension is a form of hostility. Where, um, you know, do you ever think about what it is when we, when we ask people to speak proper English? What's proper English? Proper English is the Queen's English. It's the English of white empire. When you look down on somebody for saying ain't or y'all or for speaking street slang or patois or hip-hop language, when you look down at somebody who has a southern accent, those are all forms of discrimination because people aren't living up to the standards of white empire. That grammar Nazi you know is a racist. (laughs) And that's me. The assumptions we make are forms of hostility. One of our migrant worker friends uh, was given a brand new bicycle, was riding home from work one day, got pulled over by the police because the police officer said, there's no way a person like you can own a bike like this. Where did you get it? Did you steal it? He was eventually vouched for and he was allowed to keep his bike. He went home, you know what he did? He immediately scuffed up his bike. He damaged it, he scratched it, he painted it. He wrecked his brand new bike just so that he'd be allowed to keep it without being suspected of theft. I have never had to do that. But I have had those same kinds of thoughts as the police officer had. Those are forms of hostility. This is not the way it's to be in the church because of Jesus. In fact, um, instead of othering people, which is a verb that has now been created to mean to label or define somebody as a part of an inferior group because they don't match the norm, which is you, instead of othering people, Jesus invites us to serve other people. It says in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Those are the heart of white supremacy, of racist structures. The kind of selfish ambition that seeks to consolidate power and privilege and leverage society to my own advantage. The same kind of vain conceit that assumes that people who are like me are superior in, in, in um, intangible ways to people who are unlike me. That being like me is better. Paul says, that's not the way it's to be. Instead, do what Jesus did, who gave up all of the power and privilege in the world in order to stand in solidarity with other people, in humility, acknowledging that my white skin and blue eyes do not qualify me to great, for greater advantage than other people's different appearance. It, for the hum, in the humility that acknowledges that I have participated in racist structures unwittingly and willfully blindly in ways that advantage me. Value others above yourselves. Position yourself beneath others in order to promote their interests. 
look to the interests of others? What would it look like to, to make decisions based on how it positively advantages people who aren't you? That's what Jesus is inviting us into. Not othering people, but serving other people. So what does that mean for all of us whiteies in the room? The answer is, I don't know. Because I'm white. I'm a part of the problem. And so it's hard for me to be a part of the solution. The second I assume that I am, I'm just being the white savior all over again, showing everybody else how white people can solve all the problems. So here's what I suspect we need to do. We need to stop self-segregating. We need to increase the number of voices of people of color in our lives, around our dinner table, in our friendship circles. And not a trophy or a token black friend so you can talk about your one black friend. To increase the number of voices of people of color in our circle. Following people on social media, listening to podcasts, listening to music, reading authors of color. Doing anything you can to hear the perspective of people of color in your world. And then listen, 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 listen. Ask people of color if they feel safe enough to share it, to share their experience with you. Ask them to share ways in which you have radiated the privilege of whiteness into their life in a way that has put pressure on them. And as they share with you, believe them. Don't minimize their experience and say, well, that's not racist. They know what's racist. They understand their culture and white culture, right? We don't understand their experience, but they do understand whiteness. They've had to in order to survive. Believe them when they share their experience. Number three, when you believe them, ask them what you can do to stand in solidarity with them. How you and your whiteness can be of service to them. And then finally, when they tell you, do it. It could be something as simple as being the one who confronts uncle so-and-so at the Christmas dinner who tends to use the word Jew as a verb. That's on us, you and me, to deal with that. The point is, we have conflated our faith with a system of whiteness that has built a culture by whites for whites to advantage whites. And Jesus is calling us to better than that for the sake of people of color, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake, for Jesus' sake himself and for the sake of our world. May we become the kind of people who follow the call of Jesus to love everyone else as much as we love people who are like us. Let's pray. Father, I don't know everybody's experience or background in this community. I don't know where we're coming from or what our stories are. But I know that our society is broken. I know that our church has participated in the brokenness. But I also know that Jesus, you came to set us free from the brokenness of racism, to set our hearts free free, to transform us, to transform our relationships, to transform our community, to transform our city, our region, and our world.
Jesus, would you do your transforming work among us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.